Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We didn't record last week, so I'm going to do a reviewing of what we did last week. We're in Psalm 27, page 40 or page 92, or Psalm 27, wherever you have it. Uh, God is my light and my salvation. So who should I be afraid of? And, uh, I did comment last time I said that there's a classical midrash that says, or the Yesha or Rivishi refers to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. When is God my light on Rosh Hashanah? Because there's a verse, uh, that says when God establishes or, or executes, affects judgment, mishpat, then that judgment comes out like the light of day. We would say in English, clear as day. Okay. Um, and yesha, salvation, protection on Yom Kippur, because when God gives us our final judgment as, um, uh, we hope as, um, innocent, that's on Yom Kippur. So given the odd pairing of light, and salvation, which are not exactly parallel, okay? Because uh, all the other metaphors are metaphors that we'll see of protection. So why is light here? The Midrash picks up on that and says, Orvi, Orivi, she refers to Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Um, and later on, of course, we have God protects me in God's Sukkah. And this may be the origin of why this psalm um, got adopted for the high holiday season, even though, again, it did not actually get adopted till by that. Uh, as that until the 1700s. But maybe that midrash from over a millennium before kind of lies behind the choice. We'll ask when we're finished with everything, are there any deeper reasons? Could there be any deeper reasons for the choice for high holidays? So God is my salvation for whom I am afraid. God is my stronghold from who should I be afraid? Rhetorical questions. I'm not afraid of anyone because God is my stronghold. When evildoers come near me or do battle against me to gobble me up. Alan, I'll get back to your question. Um, my enemies, they're the ones who are going to stumble, right? They're coming to attack me, but they're the ones who are going to fall. So Alan pointed <clears throat> out that um, our translation in the Sim Shalom is when evildoers draw near to slander me. And Alan wondered, given, is there any place where to eat my flesh might be understood as a metaphor for slander. So I couldn't come up with any. Um, I don't think that's a biblical phrase. I looked at all the classical commentators on the page of the Mikra Utkidolot, and none of, the, none of them give that interpretation. There is a phrase in rabbinic Hebrew, but that's in the Talmud, um, which means literally to eat destruction, literally that's what it means, to eat destruction, and it's used as a metaphor to mean to slander. There are various stories where so-and-so will, lechol kurza be malka, someone is going to go slander the Jews to the Roman governor or emperor, and the Jews will have to defend themselves. So, that's the closest I could come, which is really not very close. So um, I'm not quite sure. And then I looked at um, our newer Sidur and Mahsur, the Lev Shalem, 
And Ed Feld, who's the editor of that, um, did not adopt that. So why Jules Harlow, Zichro Livracha, decided to have that be the English, I don't know the answer. So if anyone can dig up any more on that, that would be great. Michael? Uh, I noted that both slander and eating up involve a that's, that's Okay. Okay. So you, you have a connection, but... You know, it's eat my flesh. All right, but but I think that's okay. I think we have to have more than that. Okay, that's a start. So, um, and if anyone comes up with anything about that, eating my flesh means slandering anywhere else. It is an odd choice, given that it's clear that all the other things the enemies are doing are trying to make war against me. They're not, no, none, nothing else that they're saying is oral, right? Everything else is battle. So it's, it is, it does seem to me, um, an interesting and somewhat unusual choice in the translation. Um, so they're, they're going to stumble. Even if a camp encamps against me, I'm not afraid. Even if war breaks out against me, bizot anivoteach. Oh, hold on. I have um, things coming in in front of me. Okay. And we said bizot. This is what I take faith in or trust in. Uh, we said an interesting question, um, is, um, does bizot, right. does that apply to what I just said? This is what I place my trust in, that God is my salvation. I'm not afraid of war. Or is the zot, is the, this mean what I'm about to say? Is it zot, colon? This is what I trust in, colon, what comes after what I'm about to say. And, uh, not entirely clear perhaps intentionally ambiguous. Now we're up to part 1B. And again, I'm going fast as I'm reviewing. 1B, um, and and in thinking about it more, since I knew I'd have to review for this week, um, 1B shifts from war battle to um, various, I'm going to say, images, metaphors of God's house, and I think that this can mean three different things. God's house can actually be the Beit HaMikdash. Uh, we'll see various sort of synonyms. That's what I'll say. It could actually be the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. It could actually be a, a protective actual fortress. Or we said that there are various commentators who see this as just metaphoric for leading the godly life, right? If I live with God always, then any place I am is God's house. That's what I think uh, Malbim says, either Radak or Malbim. I'm sorry, I don't remember, right? That uh, who, who says, how could David HaMelech ask to be in the temple every single day for the rest of his life? Even the Kohanim, whose job it was to be in the temple, they didn't go every day. They rotated. So it doesn't really make any sense for David to say literally, I want to be in the temple every day for the rest of my life. So it must be a metaphor for I want to lead a godly life every day for the rest of my life. So three, all that we're going to see all these sort of synonyms of place, and it could be the temple. It could be a fortress. It could be living with Hashem, okay? And we'll see that in those different places, the different sort of synonyms 
will evoke those three things differently. And again, I'm, I think that that overlap of meaning or multiplicity of meaning or ambiguity is probably intentional. It's poetry. Okay. So sometimes it's a fortress and sometimes it's the temple. Okay. So one thing, there's only one thing I want. So I said, I'm not afraid. God defends me in battle. So, but am I thinking of, I want to be protected in battle? No, I only ask you God for one thing. So all these evildoers are surrounding me. They want to gobble me up or they want to slander me. They're going to make war against me, right? Just imagine a fighter when they're about to go into battle. What would you ask for? You'd ask, I want to come home alive. I want to be protected. I want to win. But here's what the psalmist says. I only want one thing. Okay. Shivti bevet Hashem kol yemei chayai lachazot benoam Hashem ul vaker to dwell in God's house either for the rest of my life or every day in my life to behold or gaze upon God's beauty and to visit God's hechal, God's palace or sanctuary. We also said last week, levaker usually means to visit. Um, occasionally it can mean to dis- criticize or discern. And some of the classical commentators say, to do discernment in his house means that King David is saying, I just want to be in the temple and study Torah all the time, right? I'm out here on the battlefield at war. The one thing I really, really want is to be in shul studying Torah. I'm stretching the metaphor just a little bit. Okay. Hold on, Alan. Okay. So that's the one thing I want. For God will hide me like Tzafun, you know, like the Afikomen in the Seder is that word, in God's Sukkah, which just means a, sh- literally just means a shelter, okay, on a day, on a bad day at a time of trouble. So it's God's shelter. Does that mean God's protection? Does it mean the actual temple? Does it mean the temple is a place of protection? Does it mean the Sukkah of Sukkot? The answer to that question is, so those questions is yes, it potentially means all those things. For God will hide me in God's shelter on a day of trouble. Yasti reini beseter oholo. God will hide me in the hiddenness of God's ohel or tent. Again, metaphor for place, sanctuary, temple. Bitsur Yeromameni, elevate me on a rock. All right. So again, Bitsur usually, the rock usually means I'm on the highest crag looking down at my enemies. Right. Remember the, I, I didn't say this last week, the temple in Jerusalem is built on a high bedrock. It's actually bedrock under it. Right. So perhaps it's an image of a secure place, etc. Um, and then the atah yarum roshial oivaisivotai. Then my head will be lifted up above all my enemies all around. Meaning I'll be up here. I'll be looking down at them. This sense of victory or you know untouchability. They're not possibly going to be able to vanquish me. And I will sacrifice in God's ohel. So first we had God hides me in God's ohel, which makes it sound like a protective place in wartime. But here 
I'm sacrificing in the Ohel. So here, the second Ohel clearly connotes the temple, okay? So when my head is lifted up above all my enemies, then I will sacrifice in God's tent. Sacrifices of victory or sacrifices upon which we sound the shofar, okay? Perhaps another link to high holidays. And I will praise God, which reminds us of so many of the Psalms where the storyline and so many of the Psalms of lament or prayer is, God, I'm in a jam. Will you please save me? You don't want me dead. And when you save me, you know what I'm going to do. Then I will come to the temple. I will offer praises and thanksgiving, and I will tell everyone the story about how great you are. So part of the salvation in many of those Psalms is that I've then got to proclaim publicly how God saved me. And we had a sense of this here. So it's clear that by the end of section 1B, we're really talking about being in the temple, the actual concrete temple, offering thanksgiving, sacrifices, and praise. So section 1B, I will say, ambiguously dances around the question of, is the protective place some place or fortress? Because I started out in section 1A with, I'm doing battle, but I'm protected because God protects me. Okay, I only ask one thing, God. I want to be in your shelter. Is that the Beit HaMikdash? Does that mean I want to be protected for you in battle? Does that mean I want to live a godly life? By the end of 1B, it means all those, but the end of 1B, the psalmist seems to nail it down, which doesn't dismiss the other two meanings of protective place, fortress, or living the godly life. But by the end of 1B, he comes down clearly, concretely, as I'm sacrificing in the temple, saying thank you. These are victory sacrifices, and I'm praising God. Okay, so I'm going to pause Alan first, then Michael. Um, again, with the with the translations, it talks about levaker and he thought it might be like to uh, to study Torah or criticism. But here in the English, they says it's to pray in God's sanctuary. And I thought it's levaker possibly like a word like vayivka, like Yaakov has for the meaning of Mari, because they use that word there and do something like that is. Live our care in any way connected with prayer. All, um, all I will say is n- none of the classical commentators offer that interpretation. That doesn't mean that Rabbi Harlow did not have a basis for saying it, but I don't know what it is. I suspect he wants to domesticate the psalm. He wants it to be not about King David going out and fighting battles, he wants it to be more relevant to us, the Jew in the pew. And so he's, you know, oh, people, I'm going out to war. I don't know if I can relate to that. Oh, people are slandering me that I can relate to. Coming to the temple, visiting the temple. I don't know that I can relate to that. Pray in your sanctuary. Okay, that I that makes sense to me. Terry, I think, could you mute, please? I think you're unmuted. I'm hearing something in the background there. So that's what I'm guessing. I'm guessing he's trying to domesticate it. I'm not sure what basis the translator has. Okay. Uh, Michael. Yes, let me offer another uh, possible interpretation of uh, Bitsur. Uh, rather than thinking of it as a, a craggy rock at the top of a mountain, Yeah. since Sur is used rock as a metaphor for God, 
maybe what David is asking for is to be metaphorically placed upon God's shoulders. Okay. Lift me up on the tzur with a capital tzadi. Right. Good. Okay. I just want to point out the, to, the reason why God is called the tzur. Okay. So, uh, yes, I don't, I don't disagree with you, but what's behind the idea of calling God the tzur is the craggy rock. It's not a boulder. Okay. It's not like, oh, it's a big rock that I can't roll away. All right. It's the rock face. It's a, it's a cliff. Okay. It's a cliff in the wilderness of Judea. That's what a tzur is. Right. So that's why God is called the tzur. Right. Because that place of uh, protection and shelter is deemed to be impregnable, unassailable. Okay. If you're in the sewer, no one can beat you. And that's why God, I think that's behind the metaphor of God as the rock, my rock and my redeemer, Turi the Ali. Okay. Um, so I'm not disagreeing with you, Michael. I'm just saying, uh, yes, that's a nice understanding of it, but, uh, uh still, I think that's why God is called the tour, right? So I'm on a craggy rock or I am in the shoulder. I'm on God's, he's got the whole world in his hand, right? I'm sitting on God's shoulder, looking down, as it were, kiviachal, looking down at all those surrounding enemies. And it still, it connotes protection and um, impregnability. Okay. Other thoughts about anything we've read up until now. So I call it 1A and 1B, because now we're going to get into a shift to a very different tone. The shift of tone is, let us say, safety and security. Let's just say the first half of the psalm is about my sense, my, the psalmist, sense of safety and security, King David's sense of safety and security. 1A is God protects me. I am not afraid of anything. All these evildoers are surround me. 1B is, you know, I only want one thing, God, which is to be in your temple, in your place, whatever that means. Of course, by the way, it's a, it's a very clever request, right? I'm going into battle. God, the only thing that I'm asking is that I'll be able to come to Shul and bench Gomel, right? It is an <laughs> indirect way, of course, of asking for victory, right? But instead of saying, give me victory and destroy my enemies, it says, I only ask one thing to be able to come to your temple and offer my victory sacrifice. I want to be in your presence. Okay. So it's a, it's a very, it's a, a, an elegant roundabout way to say, I'm going into battle and I want to have victory. I don't mean to imply that it's, um, manipulative. Okay. Other thoughts about part one, part one, a one B, how they fit together. Any of these phrases. Okay. We can go on. Okay. Uh, I actually, before I go, we go on, I want to come back to Bizot. The, the is, this is a thing in which I take security. This is the thing in which I trust. And could it mean what came before? So, or what comes below? So, if it's what uh, refers to what comes, and it's both, I think that's called an enjambment in poetry. Oh, or okay. I, I believe it's called an enjambement. E n j a m b m e n t, like a door jam. It's something that's, you know, the door jam is the J-A-M-B is like where the 
where the hinges are attached and it can swing both ways. That's why it's called an enjambment in poetry. I think that's the term. It means a word that can either belong to what came before or the phrase that comes after. Oh. So, um, so I think that's what the word is anyway. So it could mean God protects me. I'm not afraid of enemies. And that's the thing that I trust. Or it could mean here is the thing that I trust or that gives me security is that God, the one thing I ask of you, the only thing I want out of life is to be able to be in the temple, in the godly life. Because, I, you know, the one thing I'm focused on is not my battle. It's not cleaning my rifle. The one thing I focus on is how close I want to be with you. And that feeling that I have, the knowledge that that's the only goal that I have, that's what gives me the sense of security because I feel so God directed. Okay. So I think that's how the bizot can either go what's above or what's below it. Any thoughts about that? That's just my, just floating that idea there. I, I'm no, I'm no poetry analyst. Okay. Part B, part two, the transition. Shema Adonai Koli Ekra Vechoneni Vaneni. Hashem, listen to my voice calling out and be gracious to me and answer me. Okay. So I was here in the temple. I'm anticipating being in the temple offering victory sacrifices. And all of a sudden, sorry about the dog barking. Can't do anything about it. And all of a sudden, now I'm back here saying, God, I hope you're listening. Okay. And we'll, we'll, I, I just want to raise the question of what's the emotional or psychological tone of the poet here? Don't, let's not answer that yet. Uh, this is a hard sentence in Hebrew and all the commentators have trouble with it. Lecha amar libi bakshu fanai et panecha adonai avakesh. Most of the commentators say it means something like this. Lacha does not mean to you, it means of you. Sometimes the la particle can mean concerning or about rather than to. So about you, my heart says, which means in what we would say in English, inside me, there's a voice that is saying, what is that voice? It is my heart, it is my intuition, it is my conscience, although conscience is usually the kidneys, not the heart in biblical Hebrew, that there's some something in my mind which says about you, concerning you, my heart says, quote, bakshu fanai, seek my face. Now, the Hebrew is still a little odd because ma, it's libi, my lev, not libenu, okay, not plural, but God is saying, or the, vo- the voice in me is saying, bakshu fanai, seek ye my face in the plurals. Use, use guys, seek my face. So even with that understanding, there's still a wrinkle there. So what this is saying is concerning you, I'm going to try to translate it simply concerning you. I hear this inner voice saying, seek me. So what, what's that inner voice? Who's the me? Who's the me? Who's me? The voice says, seek me. 
Oh. Who's me? God. Right. So it's like I hear a voice inside of me, which is like my voice, but I'm hearing God's voice internally. Okay. Mm-hmm. In my heart, mind, again, Lev isn't just heart, it's mind. It's seed of, of, of consciousness, awareness, thoughts, and feelings. Okay. I hear, as it were, God's voice saying, presumably, seek me, bakshu fanai, close quote. Et panecha Hashem avakesh. Um, we could insert some word here that isn't in English, that isn't in the Hebrew, like something like, indeed, right? Indeed, God, I seek your face. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, we can raise the question of what does it mean to seek God's face? So we were talking about the temple. Are we talking about temple stuff? Is it actual ritual? Is this a metaphor for, you know, wanting to, I don't know, be connected to God, commune with God, something like that. Okay. So I hear this inner voice saying, seek God. So God, please listen. I'm saying, I'm saying, Shema Hashem, Hashem, hear my voice. Next line. Ah, ah, I hear an inner voice saying, seek my face. God is saying, but then seek my face. Yes, in fact, indeed, God, that's what I'm looking for. I indeed am, right? It is you that I seek, says my heart. It is your presence that I seek, O oh Lord. Okay. Um, you that I seek, Bakshu Fanai. Yeah. Um, the translator has trouble with Bakshu Fanai and says, it is you that I seek, right? Which is not an actual translation of the Hebrew. The Hebrew means seek my face, right? So it's a hard sentence. I want to move on a little bit. Um, and maybe do one more sentence. Um, Altaster panecha mimeni. Don't hide your face from me. So I seek your face. Don't hide your face from me, please. By the way, same root to stare to hide before the psalmist said it was used very differently. Hide me in your hidden ohel. Right? It was a, it was a verb used about security. You're going to hide me from my enemies. Here it has a totally different valence to it. Don't hide from me. Right? It's like the, you know, the adult who plays hide and seek by covering their face when a baby is young enough, they start crying because they don't know that you're still there. Right? Until the baby gets to the age where it's kind of funny and a game because they know that you're still there. Right. But when they're very young, you cover your face. There's the, they don't know you're there anymore. Right. It's before they have a, whatever it's called, object permanency. And, uh, and they cry. They're upset because you're gone. Right. So I'm, I'm seeking, I'm looking for you. Don't start playing hide and seek with me, God. Okay. Don't hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant, which is a polite way of saying me, a humble way of saying me. Do not turn me away. In anger, if God were hiding from me, the only possible reason I could imagine for that would be God is angry with me, okay? It's like your parent who refuses to talk to you. The parent who locks themselves in their bedroom because they're so angry, okay? So 
Don't turn away from it. Don't ignore me out of anger. Ezrati Haita, you've always been my helper. Alti Tashani Alta Azveni Eloheishi. Do not abandon me and do not leave me, God who saves me. So all of a sudden, in section B, the tone has really, really, really shifted to, I guess I would call it pleading, possibly even abject pleading. Don't, you know, they, they say to me, my, my voice inside says, seek my, fa- seek my face. The godly voice says, seek my face. God, I seek your face. Don't abandon me. Don't ignore me. Don't turn away from me. Don't hide your face. It's all captured in, in, in the image of hiding your face. Okay. Um, and because we started on the image of the parent, we'll go on with the image of the parent, but we're definitely going to stop. I'm just going to call time. We're, 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 we're four minutes over when I want to stop, but I, I, I wanted to get to the, the beginning of the pleading part. So where we're going to go next week, because hopefully it's going to record this week and it'll post is we're going to like in two sentences, I don't know, in two minutes, we'll review part 1A and part 1B. We'll start, we'll review again part two and we'll see if we can wrap it all up. Okay. But I hope everyone sees, which is why I call it a part two. All of a sudden, Mr. Security, my enemies, I'm looking down on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of a sudden, he is begging and pleading and saying, please, 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 I'm looking for you. Don't hide from me. Don't abandon me. It's a very uh, dramatic, I'm going to say, shift in tone. As we see in lots of Psalms, right? So many the individual Psalms are kind of, uh, many of them are an emotional or psychological journey or drama on the part of the poet. So here's where we have some of that. And we'll continue next week, God willing. Everyone stay healthy. Be Torah. Hope to see you next Tuesday. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tba.org.